Before we begin the mid-season premiere, I want to give a big thank you. Thank you for all listening and sticking with us as we find our voices and our footing. Thank you to our supporters on Patreon. And for this episode in particular, Richard and I both want to extend a massive thank you to the March for Science community. When we were looking for different studies and stories to talk about for this week's topic, I decided to post in the Facebook group and the responses just... I mean, they were just crashing in. I mean, the notifications just wouldn't stop. Had over 100 suggestions, dozens of Facebook messages, and they were all great. And our biggest regret is that we can really only cover so much in one episode. But we are so grateful for the support. So let's get started. This is A Wildlife. I'm Devin. I'm Richard. And today we have quite the show. Yeah, today we're discussing an animal, well, a type of animal, that has been around for 190 million years. Creatures that have been through two mass extinctions, but maybe not a third. Today we are going to Panama, twice, the western U.S. and Germany. From fungus to explosions. To planes and mutations. Figured it out yet? Well, probably, because, you know, they've already seen the episode title and the description in all likelihood, so... Frogs. Frogs. When I think of frogs, I think of the sounds of a summer evening. And when I think of toads, I think of the visitors to my front sidewalk and really hope they don't get stepped on or attacked by my dog. It ain't easy being green. Frogs and toads, um, well, they are amphibious creatures that have a metamorphosis cycle that they go through, and they're in memes a lot. I find a lot of frogs really cute, even toads, you know, like the, what is it, Pac-Man toad? That thing's adorable like squeaks. Tree frogs are cool. They climb on stuff. I think I think they're cool. They eat bugs. Not that I'm really concerned about their usefulness because they're cute. Sort of like cats. Like, yeah, they catch mice, but like really I just like them because they're cute. Warts. Uh, frog legs. Um, if you kiss a frog, it'll become a prince. Um, frog gigging. Um, I think some frogs are cute. Little frogs. Like the little peepers or whatever they're called, but toads I think are kind of gross. They're not bad. I don't have any bad views towards them. I just don't really care about them. Um, well, I don't really know a whole lot about frogs and toads individually, but frogs are pretty cute. Toads are a little bit less cute to me. They're kind of associated with witches and brews and warts, but I'm pretty sure the wart thing is actually a myth, isn't it? There are two types of people in this world. Frogs and toads? What? No. People who like frogs and people who never really think about them. Well, I guess there are some people who hate them, but... Who hates frogs? I know a few people who just think they're really disgusting and stuff. I used to work with a girl, actually, who freaked out if I ever had a picture of a frog on anything, and as a wildlife lover, that was more frequent than I'd like to admit. But I'm willing to bet that a majority of people really don't give frogs and toads much of a thought. 
which is a shame because they can really tell us so much about our lives and the rock that we live on. I know this isn't part of the show, but what's the difference between a frog and a toad? Technically speaking, toads are a kind of frog, so it's sort of one of those things where not all frogs are toads, but all toads are frogs. Oh, okay. See, I had that completely backwards until just now. For real? Yeah. <laughs> the biggest difference really is just in appearance. Toads are, you know, rough and frogs are smooth, generally. And generally, toads spend more time on land and frogs in the water. There's some other things, but meh. And as a side note, sort of a myth understood bit, toads don't give you warts. Totally false. Stop saying that they give you warts. Okay, okay, that's good to know. But anyway, I see what you mean. We use frogs for learning about the human body, for biomimicry and mechanical engineering, for medicine. I mean, we, we really take them for granted, and that's dangerous. There's so much that can be learned from them. Speaking of what can be learned, I want to start with a story that I first read about in a book called The Universe Within, The Deep History of the Human Body by Neil Shubin. And it's the story of two Harvard professors, a bet, and flying frogs. What? Yep, in the 1930s, scientists didn't really yet have an understanding of things like plate tectonics, even less of an understanding of just how animals dispersed to new habitats around the planet. And there were two main theories that were hotly debated. One, there used to be land bridges between continents that allowed animals to, you know, just simply walk to a new place. And the ocean had merely taken back that land a long time ago, like Atlantis or something. The other theory was animals could be blown to a new place by wind, water, or storms. Now looking back from today, it seems silly, but a man by the name of Professor Philip Darlington and his boss, Thomas Barber, they were firm believers on opposing sides. Darlington believing the blown away bit and Barber thinking the land bridges was the most possible. This disagreement is what led to a wager during a coffee time argument at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology. To solve it, an experiment. One that we probably wouldn't do today and sounds more like a Monty Python sketch than reality you see, Barber believed the blowing theory just couldn't be because if wind was sweeping animals off the ground and sending them over a huge distance, they would probably just die when they hit the ground. So, Darlington stood on a rooftop with a bucket while Barber stood in the lawn below. And in that bucket were frogs. One by one, Darlington began tossing them into a five-story freefall while Barber watched them hit the ground with a thud, and then announced their death. But, turned out Barber was wrong, and within a few minutes, the frogs began to wake up and hop about the lawn below, which seemed to prove once and for all, at least at the time, that Darlington was right. But I mean, I suppose it makes sense that they didn't die. I mean, I knocked spiders off the ceiling and... The fall must be crazy for them, but they always just walk away. Yeah, I mean, it says more about their size than anything, not so much 
a special property of being a frog or anything like that, but, you know, smaller objects hit with less force, while other things might, you know, splat. Speaking of splat, do you remember years ago when those toads were inexplicably exploding in Germany and people were freaking out about it? <laughs> yes, I do. Did they ever figure out what was going on? They did, and I'll tell you right after the break. This episode is brought to you in partnership with The Urban Interface. The Urban Interface is an educational and conservation-based organization based in Bryan College Station, Texas. Using non-releasable wildlife, they provide resources for individuals and communities to interact with and reconnect with nature, whether in the city, country, or somewhere in between. Learn more about their mission, their animal ambassadors, and their program at www.theurbaninterface.com. All right, we're back, and where were we? Exploding toads. Right. Back in 2005, Germany was being faced with a mystery. Toads were exploding. No joke. Over a thousand toads puffed up and exploded in the course of a month, and Hamburg's health officials were stumped and panicked. No one could figure out why they were croaking. <laughs> oh jeez. Until Germany's top amphibian expert got his hands on some specimens and noticed they all had something in common. A small circular incision on their back and something missing. Their liver. Now, these particular toads have toxic skin, and the only part of them really edible is the part that filters out toxins, being the liver. And clever crows had somehow figured that out. But how does that make them explode? You see, these toads actually puff themselves up as a defense mechanism after realizing they'd been attacked because they may have not noticed at first considering their skin isn't particularly sensitive. They'd puff up quickly, but without the liver there to hold the organs in place and a hole being present, their organs would explode outward. <laughs> That's... nasty. But, makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess crows just like frog raw. Well, since we're on the subject of frog mysteries, I've got another one for you. Alright, hope it's not too much of a leap. No. Okay. This one takes us to the American West, where frogs were, and still are, being found with some serious, sick, gruesome-looking deformities. Since then, it's only become more widespread, but frogs were being found with either no legs or extra legs protruding out at all sorts of weird angles, looking like a twisted attempt at combining a frog and an octopus. What the heck is causing it? A worm. What? Rather, a parasite flatworm. And if you want to talk about it clever, get a load of these fellas. And I don't mean like get worms or anything like that, but you know, just wait till you hear about them. These frogs unable to move, well, die, or unable to evade a predator like a bird. And this is perfect for the worms. Why is that? To explain, I kind of need to start with the snails. Well, what? Yeah, I know 
all over the place, the ram's horn snail. They're actually really common to many western wetlands and their hard shells provide the perfect shield for tiny little asexually reproducing flatworms, meaning they clone themselves. Once they get to a good enough amount inside of the snail shell, at night they shoot out like bats out of a cave and they seek out the perfect host, tadpoles. Ew. <laughs> yeah, and when they get there, they burrow in and they go straight for developing limbs. Once the frog has gone through all of its you know, metamorphosis and stages and it tries to get on land, it's dealing with some pretty gnarly deformities. When a bird inevitably takes advantage of the easy catch, it just unknowingly invited in a new tenant. Or should I say, flatmate? Uh, no, that's pretty smart, though. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Inside the bird, the flatworms will sexually reproduce and then lay eggs. And like all food, it has to come out at some point, right? And when the birds eventually poop in what is likely a new body of water, the eggs can hatch, find a new snail, and start the cycle all over again. Can we uh, move on from the parasites now? What the point is, and what I think both of our stories just go to show, is that frogs are incredibly vulnerable. Part of it is that they have such a varied life cycle, you know, part on land, part in the water. They also have incredibly permeable skin that basically absorbs the environment, like a sponge. So if the environment is loaded with toxins, it spells danger for frogs, and it may just be an early indicator of things going bad, sort of like a canary in the coal mine. Which brings us to our first guest, Dr. Jamie Voyles, assistant professor, disease ecologist, and general biologist at the University of Nevada, Reno, and her research in Panama. She began working in Panama around 15 years ago. Yeah, my colleagues and I were working in Panama a long time ago when we were very young and naive graduate students um, just starting out in our scientific careers. And we were working in uh, certain areas of Panama around uh, 2003, 2004. At the time, it was a phenomenal place to work if you liked amphibians. There were so many species um, and so many frogs to work with. Um, and then it was not too long after that that we had an infectious disease outbreak in those areas. And we were there to see um, a lot of the amphibians there become very sick. Just along the sides of streams struggling to stay alive. Um, and that was really devastating, and I think it really changed things for our our careers um, going forward. And we've been working in that area ever since to try and understand what happens um, to host populations after a disease outbreak. Some of these areas, like the ones in which she did much of her work, there could be as much as 70 different species and just a small geographic area. Yeah, and so as you can imagine, there's a, a lot of variation. Some of them are more rare. A lot of them can be hard to find. But from our rough estimates, you know, we, we think that approximately, you know, 20% didn't really seem to be affected by the disease. Um, whereas, and you know, the other species, um, to our knowledge, you know, did, you know, suffer some sort of impact as a result of the disease outbreak. So it's really quite a remarkable infectious disease because it can infect so many different species. Um, that's something that we don't 
you know, we don't see too often um, in terms of one pathogen being able to infect so many different species. So what ended up being the culprit and how does it work? The disease is caused by a fungal pathogen. Uh, its scientific name is Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis. Batrachochytrium dendrobatidis, also known as BD. It's the amphibian chytrid fungus that you may have heard of. It's a fungus that causes a disease in frogs called chytridiomycosis. And researchers weren't really even aware of this pathogen until the late 90s. So about 1998, 1999 was when it was first described. Um, and noticed because of the disease that it was causing in amphibians. So for many years, uh, it was thought that many of these species had been totally extirpated. They couldn't be found in the same sites where they had always been prior to the outbreak. But here's where things sort of, kind of, take a turn. You see, she and her team were back in Panama in 2012 when... We had been, you know bashing through the jungles, uh, beaten up and muddy and wet and bug-bitten mm -hmm. um, for, for a long time. Just hoping to find something. Looking for a lot of these amphibian species that went missing and then to, you know, come across a frog sort of, you know, perched on a mossy boulder and, and looking perfectly healthy and happy uh, was just a really thrilling experience. It was completely exhilarating. There's a variable harlequin frog. The variable harlequin frog. Sometimes called the clown frog or golden frog. They're very striking. There's a, there's a lot of variation, of course. Hence the variable. That they tend to be a very bright canary yellow color with um, black markings. Um, sometimes looking a little bit like uh, spots and stripes. Um, but definitely a uh, contrast between the bright yellow and the black color makes them a very uh, conspicuous frogs out in the rainforest stream. So they're little bright colored jewels against a very green backdrop. They fit in the palm of your hand, but they start out just about the size of your fingernail. Prior to the uh, outbreak events, uh, an infectious disease spread through um, uh, that changed things dramatically. But prior to that, uh, they were very abundant in certain sites. She says there were some places where you could be walking along and they'd just be darting out beneath your feet. All, all estimates were that this genus, the entire genus, was in, in trouble. Um, so to find this frog was an indication that all was not lost. Which brings us to a recent research, which seems to be revealing a slight glimmer of hope. Right. Um, so there's a handful of species that we know were thought to be um, gone as a result of the disease. And uh, for this handful of species, and this is only a small subset of all the species in the area, but for those species, we know that they have had major shifts in their population since the outbreak. And we have evidence um, that they are at least persisting and possibly recovering in terms of abundance. And our study was focused on trying to understand how that was happening. So in lots of infectious disease systems, you do see a shift in the severity of the disease, but we don't fully understand how that works. 
Um, so this research was aimed at trying to understand um, how these, you know, the subset of species was still hanging on. At least persisting. So our research really focused on trying to understand if something might be changing about the pathogen. Um, and in order to do that, we were taking samples of the pathogen from different time points to see if there had been any change in terms of the ability of the pathogen to cause disease. What we did was to basically go back to the same sites um, after many, many years, explain any changes, and we collected samples from the frogs themselves, and then we also mm -hmm. had isolates of the pathogen um, and for those samples that we collected, we were um, cryopreserving them in sort of a deep freeze state. But there hadn't been really any clear change in the pathogen. So as a result, we started to look at what we could understand about the amphibians themselves and see if the pathogen is still as deadly as it was before. Could it be the amphibians have built up some resistance? Could it be mm -hmm. that the amphibians are better able to resist infection um, to the pathogen? So that's what we were focused on and trying to understand what could, um, what could be the underlying reasons for uh, these recoveries. But there's still another factor out there, a big one, climate change. We know that climate conditions are really important for this disease because the pathogen is sensitive to things like temperature and humidity. So we know that the microhabitats that the amphibians um, select within their environment can predispose them to disease. And so um, while we are not necessarily looking at this question in the context of climate change, um, as you say, nothing happens in isolation, so it is a factor in trying to understand the mechanisms of the disease and how that might have shifted over time. Will this rebound result in a full repopulation? Is the worry over? <laughs> I think what our study does, hopefully, is to actually make a, a call to action. Um, we know that disease is not the only threat to amphibians. Um, we know that habitat destruction um, is a major problem for amphibian declines. And we also know that amphibians are confronting multifaceted problems. So while we have evidence that some species might be able to better cope with this infection, infectious disease, um, it really should underscore the importance of continuing to monitor these populations because we know that the threat of the pathogen isn't abating. And so at a very minimum, we need to protect these habitats um, where there are recoveries occurring. Um, and that, if anything, I think we, we should really redouble our efforts in terms of working on conservation of these species. Um, they're in still a very precarious position. And the yeah we have we have absolutely no room to stop worrying at this point. But before we move on, Dr. Voyles had one more very important point to share, adding further to this idea of frogs as the canary in the coal mine. What I think is a, a really good message is that you know what we're seeing and what we're trying to understand about infectious disease. Um, isn't just limited to the amphibians and to the frogs and the toads, 
I think that our study is really showing how emerging infectious diseases, um, they're going to continue to be a problem in the future. And so if we can understand how they work, we'll be better able to predict and respond to emerging diseases in all kinds of different um, animals, wildlife, um, but the same is true for humans as well. So the problem of emerging infectious disease is not going away and we can learn a lot from the frogs that ultimately will inform important aspects for human health as well. Frogs, like many types of wildlife right now, are facing rates of loss that far outpace rates experienced ever in history. The background rate of, of extinction, that's pretty much the constant kind of uh, species dying off that occurs naturally. In amphibians, it's like 200 times higher than the background rate. So even in previous mass extinctions, they haven't seen losses like this, with the exception of, you know, the big one, the dinosaur event. But amphibians in particular are experiencing unprecedented losses due to loss of habitat, increased pollution, pesticide use, degrading the habitats that they do have left, and a multitude of other things. And there's so much more that we can learn from them. Exactly. In fact, why don't we share just one more quick story of one way that mechanical engineers have been able to learn from frogs to solve real-world issues. This one comes from an assistant professor and mechanical engineer at Arizona State University. Hi, my name is Conrad Rikachewski. You see, Conrad had a problem. Sure, so uh, in general, I was um, transitioning from my old job at MIT to, to my new position at ASU, and at the time I was working on uh, anti-icing surfaces, the, the idea is that in general formation of ice is uh, the undesired in, in many scenarios like uh, aircraft um, and power lines and on, on the roads. For uh, some of these cases, uh, making a coating that would prevent the ice from sort of sticking and uh, forming uh, would be sort of feasible and would be a good solution. Uh, it's, it's not the best idea to say paint your road with something like that, but you can paint an if you could paint an airplane uh, with something that essentially prevents the ice from forming uh, or makes it easier to uh, fall off. You you would save a lot of money on uh, antifreeze, and there would be some benefits um, in terms of uh, not spraying a lot of chemicals into the environment. And this brings us back to Panama. So um, I had this sort of thought of asking a different question. What if I could make a coating that sort of reduces the amount of antifreeze that uh, is necessary to prevent icing? And at the time, I um, took a vacation. He was on vacation in Panama, funny enough. The tour guide picked up a leaf, and there's this little red poison bite frog. Uh, and the tour guide basically was like, well, watch out under this leaf. There's a poison dart frog. And you see, the funny thing about a poison dart frog is they don't always have toxic skin. It takes a lot of energy to make that toxin. So they only secrete it as a defense when they need to. And the way they do it 
um, is uh, so the way they sort of save the liquid is uh, they produce it uh, the the toxins and glands in the inner layer of their skin, and they uh, squeeze them out uh, sort of on demand through these little microprollers in their epidermis, the outer layer, uh, whenever it's needed, and then it sort of diffusively spreads through the mucus under their skin. So. Uh, that was somewhat actually what I was looking for, and and or or a sort of path to um, uh, obtaining this this general idea of of making a coating that reduces the amount of sort of functional liquid I need. So instead of making a coating that's a single layer, uh, we thought of a two layer. Uh, two layer, the inner layer being essentially sort of this dermis that stores the liquid and then we needed some kind of mechanism to be able to release it to the outside only when when it's needed and uh what we did is we took the coatings that we were trying to make anyhow for uh uh repelling the superhydrophobic ones and just made them so they had holes and they were on a layer so you can think of sort of a top coat and a primer so the primer would weaken the antifreeze and the top coat was water repellent but had holes that went down to the inner layer. So when frost was short, for example, uh, then the antifreeze would essentially touch it and sort of capillary pressure or it would uh, wick out or, or just really get released diffusively. So we just took this general idea and uh, play around the lab with it and actually turn out to work really well, at least in, in sort of these you know, lab-scale preliminary experiments. So... Unfortunately, that is the thing. It's not being used on any planes or anything like that yet. It hasn't been put out in the field. There's a lot, a lot of different tests and patents and all sorts of things that would have to go into that. And at the moment, because of funding and other things, limited resources, the project's kind of on standby while his team works on some other things. Um, we ended up being able to... Uh delay formation of, of uh, glaze, rime, and frost. So those are the three primary forms of ice, and you can think of sort of freezing large droplets, freezing fog, and just frost. These are the, the conditions that these happen in. And we're able to delay all those forms of ice a lot longer than, than any kind of classical coatings. And at the same time, we reduce the amount of antifreeze um, between two and eightfold. But there still are some pretty cool potential commercial applications. But really, I think it just goes to show that even if even a mechanical engineer can look at a frog for inspiration. Yeah. Um, but it's a uh, it's a very fun process, right? So it's nice for engineers to get get out and, and uh, look at plants. We're, we're always jealous of uh, our bio, bio, our uh, colleagues <laughs> in natural uh, sciences that they surf. They get to, uh, I don't know, go scuba diving for research, and we get to sit in the basement of a whole building. <laughs> Speaking of antifreeze, did you know that some frogs, like the wood frog, gray tree frog, spring peeper, cope's gray tree frog, and western chorus frog, all five of which would live here in Minnesota, can survive being frozen? How exactly does that work? Like, you, you were just talking about frogs with antifreeze, but do you know the details behind that process like what what is organic antifreeze yeah it's actually not that complicated well okay it's probably pretty complicated but i'll just try to explain it not so complicated let's look at a wood frog as an example so they're cold-blooded 
right? Which means their body temperature basically just goes with whatever the environment is. So when it's really cold outside, their body's gonna get really cold too. So once the ice begins to form on and inside of their skin, their liver, back to the liver, begins converting glycogen into glucose. Now that sugar is carried immediately throughout the body where it acts as a sort of antifreeze, preventing the frog cells from shriveling up and drying out. And as this process goes on, the heart begins to slow until it reaches a complete stop. Its organs stop functioning, and as much as 70% of the water inside of the frog's body would be frozen like a snow cone. If you were to dig one out of the ground, you would swear that that little frog sickle was completely dead. Virtually no sign of life. And then when the weather warms up, we don't really know what starts, what makes the cue, if it's the temperature or what, but the heart starts beating. Everything else takes a while to boot up, kind of like an old computer that hasn't been on for a while, but it's alive. And that, that's just amazing. And that goes right back to the, applica the applications of frogs when it comes to people. Is I don't know if you happen to already know if it would necessarily work this way or not. But, I mean, what if we were able to kind of recreate that process in people, whether it was like an injection of that chemical or whatever, and um, it's, it's only uh, science fiction right now, the whole idea of cryogenic freezing, but I mean, what if we were able to look at how these frogs survive being frozen and then end up being able to freeze people? Because it, it sounds silly. It's like, what, what do you actually need that for? But then, there's a couple of really cool ideas behind that. Like, what if you could freeze people who were terminal until we had developed cures? What sure. if you were able to freeze people so they could go on some 50-year interstellar mission and not die of a heart attack before they even reach their target <laughs> destination? I completely agree. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I think I've read before some research that was kind of like in the medical field that had to do with the whole antifreeze kind of thing and trying to first better understand exactly how it works. And I, I wonder what the difference is, you know, with them being cold-blooded to begin with and us being warm-blooded. I don't know. I'm not the expert there. But no, I, I completely agree. I mean... Nature in general has no shortage of ways. Nature's already figured things out. You know what I mean? Nature is already, through evolution and natural selection, it's already solved so many problems that we sit there and we say, oh, look at this problem. Let me figure out how to solve it. Well, it's, it's already been solved. And sometimes we just need to take a look at nature and, and wildlife and plants and let it inspire us and learn from it and just adapt our own technology and understanding based on what is already occurring and maybe we can tweak it maybe we can make it better maybe we can apply it to things that it doesn't necessarily apply to in nature like defrosting airplanes but it's there so why aren't we looking
here in Minnesota, and you can tell me about there, I don't know, but here, things are just starting to thaw. We just had a big snowstorm last week, and this week, there's still snow, <laughs> but it's melting, and I'm just kind of itching for everything to start waking up. Are you hearing any frogs down there yet? Um, I'm seeing some. Uh, we just dug up a pond in the backyard, and we keep finding frogs who've made their way into it. I haven't seen any yet. We were just at a place that I normally hear them. And just for me, spring, that's kind of when the magic happens, especially with frogs. What, what exactly are you referring to? Well... I mean, on one hand, that's also their mating season, but I don't mean that kind of magic. I mean, the, the spring chorus. That's what I'm looking forward to more than anything. Those are all frogs? Yeah, they are. And now, it is time for Edible Sound of the Week. Week, week, week. Last episode's Animal Sound of the Week was a bard owl. Here is this week's new sound. Boom. Like a like a like a loose banjo. <laughs> oh no, this is not close. <laughs> Send us your guesses on Facebook for a chance to win a prize. Maybe not a great prize, but a prize nonetheless. Prize is a prize. Remember, you can submit your questions and the answer to the Animal Sound of the Week by sending us a message on Facebook at The Wildlife Blog. Score bonus points and have the chance to have your voice heard on an episode by sending us a voice message via Facebook Messenger. Or you can send us a recorded voice memo from your phone. Instructions on how to do that can be found at thewildlife.blog forward slash podcast. The Wildlife is listener, reader, and viewer supported and can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you believe in what we're doing, you can show your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thewildlife. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thewildlife. When you become a patron, you'll gain exclusive access to content and have the opportunity to appear on our show to ask us your questions or help read the credits. We'd like to give a special thanks to a Christopher John Trankle and Alicia. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store and share with your friends. And you know what? While you're on iTunes, go ahead and leave us a little review. When you do that, it helps make our podcast more visible to other people who might be looking for a new show. And to close out today's show, just take a minute, keep listening, and enjoy a chorus of frogs.